Uh, today we're going to begin a three-part um, series of messages. I will be preaching today and over the next couple weeks our uh, pastors, some of our other pastors will be uh, joining me and, and preaching these messages on the art of neighboring. Great Hills Baptist Church is one of hundreds and hundreds of churches throughout Austin and Central Texas that will be focusing on this art of neighboring, what it means to be a good neighbor. And we still have chapters uh, 20, uh, 21, and 22 in the book of Revelation, and we will pick that up later in the fall. But today we're going to join with uh, many of our other sister churches, and we're going to focus on what it means uh, to be uh, a good neighbor. There are so many passages of Scripture that from which I could choose to preach a message on neighboring. But the one I've landed on is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It's the parable of the good neighbor, really. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. And if you have your Bibles and if you would open up, that would be wonderful. And we'll read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. If you don't have a copy of the Word of God before you, you can look on the screen. We will have it printed. Uh, 25 through 37, someone said uh, this is arguably the most popular, well-known parable that Jesus ever spoke, at least in the Gospel of Luke. And there are many parabolic sayings that Jesus gave. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning where what is true in one realm is also true in the corresponding realm. What is true in the physical realm has direct application for a spiritual kernel of truth that the speaker is trying to convey. Oftentimes, Jesus, you see Him in the Bible. You see Him in the New Testament. He's so attractive. He's so amazing. He's so brilliant. He's so wise. And He deflates this very potential confrontation, this conflagration of a lawyer, a scribe, a man, a learned man, tried to bring Jesus into a trap, and Jesus just so wisely diffused the situation by telling a story. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up. Now, don't get too nervous about that word lawyer. It's not an attorney as we know it. That would be a scribe or a teacher, an expert of the Judaic Jewish law, okay? That kind of lawyer. He stood up and he tested Jesus. Now, it's very important for you to remember that. He is going to put Jesus to the test. Beware, behold, if you ever do that, get ready to be put in your place, okay? Because Jesus, in his omniscient mind, he knows exactly what's on this man's mind, and Jesus will respond with an amazing story. He stood up, he tested him, and he said, Teacher, Rabbi, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? What is your reading of it? What is your reading of the law? So he answered and he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Ah, but the lawyer, the expert said, he wants to justify himself. Notice what he said to Jesus. Well, now you got to hear the sarcasm in this, all right? Well, pray tell, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, you religious reprobate, I ought to reach over there and just grab you by the hair of the head and shake you some sense. No, that's not what he did. That's what we do. That's what we want to do, at least verbally. But Jesus said, let me tell you a story. 
<laughs> you can just see the situation diffused immediately. Jesus said, you know, there was a man. He went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves, and they stripped him of his clothing. They wounded him, and they departed. Those thieves departed, and they left this poor man half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest priestly man, a man of the cloth, a religious man, came down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, I wonder by now if the lawyer's going, uh-oh, I should have never, ever brought this up. Oh, but no, 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 let me, let me finish. There was another religious man, the Levites, you know, they serve under the priestly order. He arrived at the same place he came, and he looked and he passed right on by the other side. But a certain Samaritan. Now, folks, when, when Jesus said that word, you, you got to understand, there was a cringing of the Spirit. There was an antagonism etched on this lawyer's brow. There was a hatred, a vitriol, an acerbic spirit just erupting in him because he said the word you cannot say in my presence. And Jesus said it. He said the half-breeds. He said, those of a way lower caste. He said, you know, those on the other side of the, of the tracks over there, you know, those guys, Samaritan. Well, he journeyed. Are you listening, lawyer? Listen to this. He came where the hurting man was, and when he saw him, he had a splakna on him, a powerful word. It means to be viscerally bodily move to the point that you cannot do anything else but ameliorate to improve the situation at hand. He had compassion on him, and not only did he do that, but he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, and he poured oil and wine in those wounds, and he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. On the next day, you still listening? You with me? Okay, on the next day, he departed and he took out two denarii, two silver coins, two full day labor wages, a full two days of work. And he gave that to the innkeeper and he said to him, take care of him. And whatever you, more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So let me ask you a question. Which of these three do you think was neighbor? That was your question, right? Neighbor to him who fell among the thieves. And the lawyer said, he couldn't say the word Samaritan, okay? He just couldn't bring himself to that lowly position to say Samaritan. So he said, well, it was the guy that showed him mercy. And Jesus said, wonderful, go and do thou likewise. What a story. What a powerful story, a response of Jesus to the question, then who is my neighbor? There's so many things we can take away from this story. The thing that I just can't wait to share with you, I'm supposed to wait later on in the sermon, but here it is, your neighbor is anybody that has a need. It may be your next door neighbor, it may be your Nepali neighbor, it may be your European, African neighbor, anybody that has a need and God puts it upon you to meet that need, well, then that person is your neighbor. A similar instance in Matthew 22, 35 through 40. This time, though, it's Jesus doing the, speaking the commandment. 
Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. The Shema. That's the Shema. That's a Hebrew word for here. Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Shema. Every Jew knows the Shema. It's love God and love Him with all that you've got. And then Leviticus 19, 18, when you couple that with the Shema, you've got the greatest of all the laws summarized in one statement, and then the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, man, put everything on that. Hang all the law, all the teaching, all the prophets on that one statement, love God and love your neighbor. You know, where you live today is important. God has placed you precisely where He wants you to live. Did you know that? God placed you in Austin, Texas, on the very zip code, the very street. You live in the exact precise neighborhood that the sovereign God of the universe chose for you to live. Well, I wish I lived in a bigger house. You shouldn't because that's not where God wants you to live. Or I want to live over here. You shouldn't because God is sovereign and He placed you where you are for a reason. You say, well, show me. I'm from the great state of Missouri. I don't believe in that. Show me, preacher, where that is in the Bible. Well, thank you for asking. Acts 17, 26 says, from one man, God made everybody. He made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and God determined right where you should live. And God determined their appointed times and the very boundaries of where they live. I was speaking to a man, a very prominent man in Austin, Texas, and man, there's a lot of prominence in Austin, Texas. There's a lot of erudite, educated, wealthy, affluent. If you don't believe it, just ask them. They'll tell you. They, they'll tell you. And this CEO of a major company in Austin and I were talking one time, and he said, luck of the draw, preacher. Luck of the draw, man, luck of the draw. I said, excuse me? He says, it's all luck. It's all fate. You and I got the lucky straw. We live in America. Those poor souls on the other side of the planet, they got the unlucky straw. I said, I disagree. He said, what? I don't think anybody's ever disagreed with him. I said, I disagree. He said, what do you mean? I said, no, it's, it's like this. A sovereign God gave you the royal treatment. He allowed you to live in the greatest country on planet Earth, in the United States of America. And then he just must really like you because he let you be born and raised and live and die in the great state of Texas. And then he let you live in Austin. And God did all of that so that you would bless that guy on the other side of the planet. And he said, well, I never thought of it like that. Well, we should think of it like that. God has blessed us so that we could be an enormous blessing to the nations of the world. Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is anybody that has a need. And my neighbor should not be relegated only to the person on the other side of the planet, but it also must include the person who is my next door. You know, in England it is said that 70% of the Brits will never attend church for no reason whatsoever. Now think about that for a minute. No infant baptism, no funeral, no catechism, 
No revival service. They will never darken the door of a church. Seven out of ten. And by the way, it's coming to America if it's not already here. There's coming a day that in America, people, the majority will never darken the door of a church. I, I preached a, a, a wedding yesterday, and the place w- was, was packed with people in there to see this man and his wife get married. And, but there's coming a day as we continue to become desensitized to the things of God and religion. There's coming a day. So here's, here's the thing we got to do. We got to know that day's coming, and instead of them coming to us, we got to go to them. We've got it all backwards in many ways in church. We, we think church is such an event, but God thinks we're the event, <laughs> that we are the church. We don't go to church. We are the church, and we're good neighbors, and we take church. We take churchianity. We take Christ to, to them, to our neighbors. Good so often is the enemy of great. Man, we work hard. We go home. And we just can't wait to get home and just open up that garage door, put that car in there, shut that garage door as quickly as we can, and get our PJs on, man, hop in our favorite chair, and just sit back and go, yes, I made it through another day. Somebody said amen. I heard that. Well over there. There's a pastor in Austin. I won't mention his name, but man. Months ago, as we were preparing and getting ready for the art of neighboring, this, this pastor stood up, and he said, I'm that guy. He said, I am him. He said, man, I deal with people all day. The last thing I want to do when I get in my neighborhood is deal with people. He said, man, I just want to go home, get underneath the covers, and just block it all out. Now, this is a pastor talking. He said, but man, the Holy Spirit has really convicted me of this. And so here's, here's what God has shown me. When I get home... Instead of rushing home and getting in my carport and getting in my home. And this is the statement he made, and it just resonated with me, and and it really convicted me too. And he said, this is what I do now. When I get to my home and I see my neighbor, instead of walking away from him or her, I walk toward him. How are you doing? I started doing that. Wow, that is pretty cool. You see, you preachers are a rough bunch. I tell you what, you, was that so enlightening that you would, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe I was, I'm like that pastor. I get home, I just want to chill out and just rest. But, but now it's kind of, these last few months has really changed me. This whole art of neighboring, getting to know my neighbors, seeing if I can meet their needs, it's really cool. And I highly recommend it. John Ortberg makes this statement. He says, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life today. Can I say that again? Hurry is the great enemy of spirituality today. He calls it hurry sickness. Love and hurry are not at all compatible because love always has time, and time is the one thing that hurried people do not have. So let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to walk you through it quickly, just some of the highlights, if you will, verses 25 through 29, this lawyer, the expert of the law, asks a question, and it's a very valid, powerful question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 25. Let me, let me give you the Baptist, good Baptist translation of that. How can I be saved? That's exactly what he's asking. How can I be saved, oh rabbi? How, how can one 
When he dies, inherit eternal... It's a valid question, even though the motives are not real pure because he's trying to test Jesus. His heart is not really there. He's full of religion, but empty of relationship of God. He doesn't really know God, but he's pretending to. But he says, "How, how can a person go to heaven? That is precisely what he asks. And I love what Jesus did. Jesus basically gave him the plan of salvation. Did you all know that the plan of salvation is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament? No other religion has this plan of salvation. One biblical commentary put it this way, and I cannot improve on this, so I'm just quoting it. This is what he said. He said, as in the case of the rich young ruler... Here in the parable of the great of the Good Samaritan, Jesus affirms the law. The teaching of the law is definitive. The way to eternal life is the same in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Here it is. This is, this is really powerful. It is by grace through a faith that works in love. It is by faith in a grace. Now let's stop there. That's the only way a person can be saved. Is God in His grace and His mercy comes down to us. We can never get up to Him. And we ask for forgiveness and He says, I forgive you. And I, and I enter into a relationship with you. And Abraham believed in God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. And Paul quotes that in Galatians 3. It's the same in the old as it is in the new. It is a faith that is drawn through grace that manifests itself in works and deeds of love. So the person who says, well, I have a relationship with God, but I hate my neighbor, and I don't want to do anything good for anybody, then they don't know God. It's impossible. It's impossible to to know God and not want to serve, not want to love, not want to meet my neighbor's needs. What shall I do to be saved? Jesus quotes, Deuteronomy 6, 5, Leviticus 19, 18, you can summarize it this way, love God and love one another. The lawyer's disingenuineness, his insincerity suffer, it surfaces quickly because it says he wanted to justify himself. When Jesus gave him the answer, or when he gave the answer and Jesus affirmed it, he was like, well, that's not good enough. I got to, man, I got to do something. By the way, religious people always want to justify themselves. Religious people always want to they always want to get the last word in. I was one of four boys growing up in the great state of Alabama, which lost in football, by the way, yesterday. <laughs> so did Auburn, I know. I, we, my, my brothers and I, we always want to get the last lick in. Does that make sense to anybody? You hit, I'm going to hit you last. That's what religious people do. You hit me, I'm going to hit you. I'm going to hit you last. So he's trying to get the last lick in on Jesus. Hit you one more time. You see, this man was a lot like the Essenes. The Essenes was a religious subgroup in first century Palestine. And and they believed that, in quote, they taught that one was to love all the children of light, but you have to hate the children of darkness. You love those like you, but you, you hate those who stand outside the community. And to that idea, Jesus said, Woo, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a good story about a good Samaritan. You know, there was a guy walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jericho to Jerusalem. And by the way, having been there, it is a cool place. In Jerusalem, looking out, seeing the distance to Jericho. And, 
And Jericho's about 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem's 2,500 feet above sea level. And so whenever you go to the Holy Land, we're going in June, Lord willing, go with us. Whenever you go to the Holy Land, it always says you go up to Jerusalem, because you do. And you come down off the holy city of Jerusalem. And Jesus, he knew this guy knew this. Jericho was where the priests lived. A huge order of priests lived in Jericho. Herod the Great had a summer palace in Jericho because the climate was so amazing. It was a wealthy, affluent city. And there in Jericho, when you, when you made the descent from Jerusalem to go to that city, I mean, there was these precipitous hills and these climbs and these rocks and these crevices. And, and, and man, I, I tell you, it, it, was, it was a dangerous road because not only of the topography, but also because of the criminality. There were criminals. And they would crouch down in there and they would see you unsuspecting. And man, they would pounce on you. And that's what happens in Jesus' story. Priest comes by, man of the cloth son of Aaron, responsible for the temple, and he looks at him and passes by on the other side. And how many times have we done that? <laughs> I, won, I read one guy, he says, man, we rush out of church to go to IHOP, and there's a guy standing there, he don't have anything to eat, and we go right by him. And we do, and I do. Many times I stop and I try not to give money, but I just try to give food or water or something on my way to go eat lunch with, with my family, a priest. Well, the Levite wasn't any better. He is a son of Levi, and he would assist the priest in the temple duties, and he rushes right on by, didn't, didn't stop to help at all. But then verse 33, here comes the hero of the story, the hated Samaritan. In 722, many of y'all know this, but 722 B.C., when the Assyrians destroyed Samaria, the northern capital of Israel, they decimated them, they deported all, basically anybody that was healthy, they deported them out of Israel, out of Samaria, and they left the decrepit, the, the, the lame, the hurt, the wounded, and the Assyrians brought in the the other races of the world and made them intermarry and to have a family with these Jews that were there, and the offspring were half-breeds. That's what they were referred to. You're part Jew, then you're part who knows what, Babylonian, Assyrian, whatever you are. And so they looked down upon them. You're talking about caste system. I mean, it was a powerful hatred that they're the Jews. We're up here, and you're way down there, and that's Samaritan. That lowly Samaritan was the one who did all of those things that we read about him. Man, is it, is it not powerful what he did? I know we read it kind of quickly, but I mean, he, he, went, he went to the 10th degree. I mean, he's binding up his wounds. He's, he's putting him on his donkey. He's taking him to the inn. He's making sure he's taken care of. And he goes, listen, and, and man, if, if this guy wakes up and he orders room service, put that on me too. You know, if he needs anything, just, just let me know. And when I come back through town, man, I want to take care. Here's, here's the thing that gets me about this. He helped somebody who could never pay him back. That's being a good neighbor, by the way. Helping somebody that could never pay you back.
There's a word here when it says, when Jesus said, and he had compassion on him, verse 33. It's it's the same identical word used of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, 35 and 36. I find this so interesting. That Jesus Christ, the one who taught this lofty parabolic statement, is the same person who actuated those principles in his own life. In other words, Jesus taught it and he lived it. He talked about it and he walked about it. Jesus Christ, it says in verse 35 of Matthew 9, he went about all the cities, all the villages. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now watch this. That's one thing to teach and to preach, but then he gets in there and gets messy. He's healing, man. He's touching those lepers, and he's, he's hugging those broken out, down people, and he's raising dead people. And, and, and when he saw the multitudes, he had esplakna on them. It's the same word used of this Samaritan. It means to be viscerally, bodily moved to the point that you've got to do something. You cannot just not do anything. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary. Those folks were weary and scattered like sheep had no shepherd. I want to close with seven statements, seven principles. They're there in your bulletin. Let me go through these quickly, and I hope that you'll jot these down, and I hope that this will encourage you to go and do thou likewise. Number one, Jesus is amazing. He's just amazing. He teaches, but then he practices what he teaches. Reminds me of 1 John 3, 16 through 18. When our beloved John made this statement, by this we know love because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. Can you all get your mind around that for just a minute? He died for me. And now we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, ouch, that's Austin, brothers and sisters. We got the world's goods. We got plenty of goods. We got more goods than we'll ever consume. And we see a brother in need, and we shut up our hearts from him. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Number two, religious people are some of the meanest people in the world. They are. The priest and the Levite... That's a lot of us, religious people with attitude. And we get so busy being religious that we forget about just being real and helping people and, and love people. Quick to point out wrongs, judge harshly, but very slow to lend a helping hand. Is that you? Can I just ask you again, is that you? Quick to judge. Very, very slow, like molasses slow, to help a brother or a sister in need. Number three, our neighbor is anybody that has a need. A neighbor is anybody that, that's in need. Man, it could be somebody across the pond or it could be across the street. It's anybody that has a need and, and you have the wherewithal to help them out. And I know you can't help everybody out, but it's amazing. When you start walking toward people instead of walking away from people, man, it is amazing what God will show you. You, you, You'll be just flabbergasted that you can pray for that person. You can just reach out and put your hand on that person's shoulder. You can just reach out and say, here's a few dollars. Let me get you lunch. Or here, let, let let me take you down to this place where you need help. It's amazing what you can do. 
If you have that esplanoi about you, that compassion. Number four, don't forget about your next door neighbor. Don't forget about your next door neighbor. God placed you where you live for a reason. Behind every closed door, I promise you, there are those with many needs. Spiritual needs, emotional needs, marital needs, financial needs, and on and on and on. Number five, walk toward your neighbor instead of walking away from him or her. Did that help anybody besides me? I see all your angelic halos over your head. Y'all are just going, of course, that's the way I live my life. I'm just, I'm just a Samaritan through and through. I just see an eater. Well, man, I don't. I don't live like that. A lot of times I'm in a hurry. I'm like Peyton Manning, hurry, hurry, Omaha, hurry, hurry. Get the next play on, man. I got somewhere to go. I got something to do. Excuse me, neighbor. Man, the Holy Spirit grabbed my heart and said, you need to slow down. These people need to know that you care about everybody. All 52 of those homes know who you are. They know what you do. They know you are a priest, a Levite, a religious holy man. You know how I know? I walked up on a party one time. Everybody was drinking. They saw me. They went, whoa, whoa. You know, they went, whoa, there's a preacher. Hello. I had my Budweiser, I mean my uh, diet lemonade. And that woke a couple of you up. There's, whoa, whoa, whoa. I had my Diet Sprite, and Ashley had her Diet Coke, and we just got in there with them, just, just talked to them. It was cool. Really fun. Don't forget about your next-door neighbor. Number six, serve them. Serve your neighbors. It's been a few months ago when I was grappling with this. I asked myself, what, what can I do for my 52 neighbors? I live in a little gated community. Praise God, a church member owns this home. He lets us live in it, rent, but it's, it's cheap. Grateful to God for that, by the way. One day we're going to buy that home. I know we will. But we're in this home. We're in this neighborhood. And God says, I want you to do something for them. And I'll tell you what, by the way, I, there's not a lot I can do. Changing a light bulb is big stuff. It is, Terry. It's big stuff. I was on ladders this weekend. I was scared to death. I was shaking, going, oh, my word. Can I pay somebody to do this? I mean, I, I'm about to fall and, and break my body. I mean, I'm way up there changing a fluorescent. Y'all ever tried to change a fluorescent light? Get it out. Get out. Then I take on the YouTube. It says, turn it 90 degrees. I said, oh. So I turn it 90 degrees. And it comes out. I was like, Y'all looking at me like, dude, you're pitiful. I am. I'm pitiful. There's very little I can do. I mean, God's gifted me to, to preach the Word, and that's, that's about it. So God says, why don't you wash all their garbage cans? I'm like, well, I could do that. I, so I did. I got three power washers, and my two sons... Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Layton. And my wife, she just busted her knee, and there she was out there in those garbage cans. She was, she was pushing them garbage cans. I'll show you again. And three teenage girls, Amanda Pittman, Sarah E's two sisters, Ruth and Raquel. We power washed 52 garbage cans. 
It was 105. We put pine saw, we put dishwashing in there, and we just blew it out. And we washed them things. I got into a couple of them because they were so nasty. And I was drying them off. Listen, if you crawl in something like that, it's 800 degrees. And I'm there cleaning that thing out. And I come out, and oh, my word, you should have seen the reaction of my neighbors. This one lady, she goes, here, here. I said, what is that? She says, it's money. Take it. And I said, well, no, ma'am, I don't want no money. I, I'm, just, I'm just showing the love of Jesus in a practical way. Oh. Another lady comes by. She goes, you know, this, this is a great um, service fundraiser. You ought to raise money doing this. You, you, you're, you could help your youth group raise. I said, no, 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 I thank you, but that's really not our goal. Our goal here is to, most people didn't say anything. Most people didn't even say thank you. But some people were really touched. In fact, one couple had a really, really good opportunity. His wife's dying of cancer. Just had a good chance to talk to him and just love on him. Serve on guys. I, listen, you might be as, uh, I don't know many people who is as less inclined to fix or do something as me, but you can wash a garbage can. You maybe want to wash their car. You may want to bake them some cookies. You may want to do, and you say, why would I do that? Because everybody has a need. And I think if more of us did that, I think our churches would be full, I think our neighborhoods would be blessed, and I think our world would have peace if just the children of God would do this. Seventh and finally, just get to know them. Just get to know your neighbors. If you'll take out your worship guide and open up, there's an insert there that has notes for the day. Would you flip that over for just a minute? Would you flip it over? Do y'all see it? It has, uh, it's a box with rectangles. In the middle it says, this is you, this is where you live. Can you name the others in those boxes? Could you put the names of the people to your right, to your left, to your north, south, east, and west? Some of you are going, absolutely, I've lived here and I know my neighbors and I love my neighbors. I know every one of them. You could fill it out. I got about 70% when I did it. So here's our assignment. Let's fill it out. Let's get to know who they are. You, you might even want to go do this. You may want to knock on their door and say, dude, I've lived next to you for 10 years. I have no idea what your name is, but my pastor asked me to get to know your name. What is your name? My name is John Brown. All right, John Brown, thank you very much. I've lived next to you 10 years. Ma'am, what is your name? Susie Smith. Thank you very, very much. Put that on your refrigerator and start praying over that. You'll be amazed what God's going to do. And they're going to ask you, why do you want my name? Because I'm going to pray for you. <laughs> I just want to bless you. I may even wash your garbage can someday. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you, Lord, for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Help us, Lord, to go and do likewise. Forgive us, God. Forgive me where I'm such a hurry, hurry person that I just don't slow down enough to help my brother, my sister in need. Lord, I pray for our people here at Great Hills that you'd make them lights shining in a dark neighborhood. Help them to love on their neighbors. 
Lord, we, we can envision a day that we would love on them so deeply that we would get the opportunity to share you with them and become their friend. And Lord, it'd be awesome if, if instead, of, instead of us just waiting on them, we go to them. And then they come to us, our church, and Lord, that would be a blessed thing. My friend, if your head's bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you would say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm just not doing a very good job of it. I have this world's goods, but I'm not very generous. Can I just not beat you up, but just say, hey, let's do better. Let's, let's, hey, you and I, let's, let's do better at this. Let's ask God to help us be a better neighbor. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to the Lord and Man, you got religion out your pores, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Again, religious people are harsh, they're critical, they're mean-spirited. And if you have that kind of spirit, ask God to replace that with a soft, malleable, sweet spirit, the Holy Spirit in you to change you in the way you act and how you live. And so let me invite you today to give your heart to the Lord. Just say, God, help me. Save me from myself, my selfishness, my pride, my arrogance, oh God. Please uh, alleviate that from me. And by faith, I'm trusting in you, Jesus, and you alone for salvation. So, Lord, thank you for our time together. Pray that you bless our invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We sing our song. God bless you. You want to come to the altar? Let us pray with you, encourage you. You have a spiritual commitment or decision, we invite you to come even now as we sing.